So our theme this month is truth and things to think about along the spectrum between absolute truth and, well, bald-faced lying. In this world of just the facts, ma'am, and the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, there is also seems to be a growing place for alternative facts. Some are really just not valid and leave you wondering what color the sky is in some people's worlds. Other times, a little fabrication may be called for. I think we've all, really, all probably used a little white lie at some point in our lives in order to avoid hurt feelings. The scenario of, of the wife's, does this dress make my butt look big, comes to mind. But today I'd like to present a different scenario for your consideration. In my mundane life, I am a nurse, supporting people with developmental disabilities and or acquired brain injury. For both of those specialties, I hold national certification and I pursue continuing education in related areas. A few years ago, I became a certified habilitation instructor through the Massachusetts chapter of the Alzheimer's Association because as the people I serve in community residences have been aging, I have been seeing more cases of Alzheimer's disease, particularly in those with Down syndrome. Habilitation is an interesting concept. I've actually been doing it for several decades, even though I didn't know it at the time, as it relates to helping those with developmental disabilities learn and retain skills needed for the activities of daily living that you and I take for granted. To me, it was a role of teacher with positive supports, which can be quite rewarding even when the gains are small. When I took the course with the Alzheimer's Association, I learned what habilitation meant when applied to those who are faced with dementia and the loss of dignity associated with losing memory and those basic self-care skills. Same word, but different approach. It is accomplished by meeting the person at whatever level they happen to be and providing an emotionally uplifting, failure-free environment to the extent to which it is possible as abilities decline. One major area this applies to is the domain of, of communication. There are so many facets to effective communication, I could easily spend a couple hours just talking about them all. And I do when I teach the course to direct care people. But I think you all would effectively communicate to me to take a hike after about 20 minutes. So I'll keep to the point that's important here today. With dementia, your skills are slowly stripped away and you essentially go backwards in developmental stages until all that is left is emotional reactions to what you perceive is going on around you. Emotional response can persist for far longer than other elements of an experience. Your perceptions of people and events are colored by them. You don't remember what is said to you even five minutes ago even when it's repeated over and over. But you associate a bad feeling with somebody who keeps losing their patience with you, and you know how bad you feel about constantly failing to understand. It makes you not want to do anything, not want to be with certain people who make you feel bad. Just close your eyes for a minute and think of how immensely frustrating that must be. <sighs> they say that being a caregiver is draining work but it's no piece of cake for the person battling the loss of intellect either. 
A caregiver who knows the principles of habilitation can take the feelings of short-term memory and turn it into a positive in order to keep the person's mood up. Though it sounds unconventional at first, not to mention it's pretty deliberate falsehood. Imagine for a moment that Jenny keeps asking if her mother is going to come at 4 p.m. Her mother has been dead for several years. Rather than repeatedly telling Jenny that her mother has died, which would give her very real pain and grief that would be fresh each time you told her, the caregiver might say something like, oh, I'm sure she'll be along. While we're waiting, let's bake a cake. Thereby effectively distracting Jenny with a fun activity that she enjoys. The emotional tone stays up and everyone stays positive. I've seen this work in a variety of situations. For instance, Ron wants to go to work in the wee hours of the morning. Rather than engage in a useless power struggle, it's best to avoid saying, no, not now, and instead say, yes, in a bit. While we're waiting for the bus, let's go to the kitchen for a cup of tea and look through your memory book. Do you see what we've done in both of these cases? We validate the person, we validate the feeling, and then distract to another activity while keeping the mood positive. The use of this technique is known as a therapeutic fiblet. It may be done when reorienting the person with dementia to the real world can no longer be done successfully and saves needless pain. It does require some creativity and resourcefulness on the part of the caregiver, but can save quite a bit of frustration and hard feelings for both parties. Some people may have a really hard time with the concept of deliberate falsehood. Wouldn't the therapeutic thing to do be to reorient the person rather than mislead them? In rehabilitation environments, that would certainly be true. And so people with rehabilitation backgrounds, they particularly struggle with this. I have seen rehab therapists and support staff try in vain to get the person with dementia oriented to person, place, and time. And when they can't, they assume the person is more incapacitated than he or she actually is. I'm seeing that right now with my own father in rehab, where they've taken away his independence in every single self-care skill he had because they think his mind is entirely gone. It's true. He comes out with a lot of really irrational ideas at times, seemingly out of the blue. He often confuses day for night. Sometimes he doesn't always recognize even close family members. However, I was shocked to find that they don't even have him in their current events class, presumably because he would not benefit. And yet he can discuss with me the latest news he heard on the TV that morning. When he does perseverate on a topic, like when he can go home, I might remind him once of what the timeline is, but then I bring up some other topic that has interested him in the past and ask him questions about it. I can see the rehab facility can't get past the perseveration, but it does create quite a bit of tension on both sides. Rehab services are meant to advance people along a certain timeline within a certain time frame to maximum potential. So what's the therapy with these fiblets? Remember that we aren't aiming to improve the person with dementia to maximum potential. We're supporting them to successfully navigate in an increasingly confusing world. As noted by unforgettable.org, if you do find it necessary to lie to a loved one, try not to feel bad about it. Instead, see the bigger truth. The person you're caring for deserves to feel calm, safe, and respected. Constantly correcting them, 
by bringing them back to reality may not only cause sadness and pain, it could also destroy their dignity and peace. Certainly, it won't work if the person is able to realize you've misled them. The caregiver would need to amend words to distract in another way if that was the fear. Instead of saying, yes, your father will be along, the caregiver might say, where would he usually be now? And find some other way to move on to another activity from there. Remember that person-centered care focuses on the uniqueness of each person and each dementia journey. Therapeutic fiblets are only one piece in the caregiver's toolkit. Thanks, Karen. The uh, issue of how to deal and care for with people with memory loss and dementia and Alzheimer's, you know, is something that affects a lot of our families in this congregation at the And I think it, it gives us a great step into dealing with truth and how to enter into and accept and witness to and validate the truth of others in many different areas. Because in many areas, seeing, accepting, validating another's truth is still about safety and respect and being person-centered. Entering someone else's truth is something that a lot of times we either don't want to do or don't feel we need to do. Sometimes because we are scared Yeah. 
that from the Ecuadorian community's perspective, not in time Saturday morning. That's why you talked a lot of slash here. Pick a weeknight. Seven o'clock. You'll catch marks. It is hard to cross a bridge to meet somebody in their own truth if you can't hear from them what it is they need to have that truth validated and heard. And I was really proud of the meeting yesterday because there were concrete steps towards really building those difficult cross-cultural bridges. A group was formed to meet and be in contact with the Ecuadorian community and together with representatives from that community trying to figure out how we can continue to bridge this divide where people of good heart on both sides who want to help and who need help can come together. So instead of doing things for somebody, we learn to build one community and do things with each other. It was a great meeting. It was a first step in better honoring each other's truth. When we do things with others, not to others and for others, we listen to their truth and experience and value. something very easy to talk about. And as I preach about it, I realize that sometimes I'm not so good at doing this myself. One of the biggest traps of ministry is you miss the truth that your people are trying to tell you. And I know I do that too. When our truth is named and heard and validated, it's so much easier to build those bridges. This week, in many of our Hundreds of our congregations are doing a teaching about white supremacy in our congregations and in the Unitarian Universalist Association and in our culture. The murder of Jordan Edwards in Dallas recently was a reminder on how much we all need to do this work. And it's also a reminder of how we still don't hear people's truth across color lines and culture lines. The people of color have a truth and a story still thought of as secondary, not as important, or as valid as our normative white truth. This past week we had a group of 217 white Christian men, federal representatives, trying to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. It is something they can only do if they do not care and do not value the truth of others that have experienced. In a sense, they believe it's someone's fault Thank you. 
through not validating, through not being able to enter into the other person's experience. It happens in these strong, powerful, cultural, political ways in our country, in the world, and it's the same way that we get into personal grudges and arguments with life partners, squabbles on the playground and at the diner and at church. We ignore, dismiss, and invalidate other people's truth. To assume we get how one, one other person is hurt and how badly it is to at once ignore their truth and to strip them of the ability to name their truth and thereby at least implicitly telling them that their truth is not so and that we know their truth better than they do. And we all do this. And why? In a sense, the concept of privilege, whether it's white privilege or male privilege or Christian privilege or cisgender straight privilege, is that we have the privilege or the option to not care about another person's truth. And when you have the privilege of ignoring someone else's truth, you assume once again that you know their truth better than they One of the most employed defenses of privilege is, in a sense, also gaslighting, a form of emotional abuse that causes a victim to question their own feelings, instincts, sanity, giving the abusive partner power and control. Blog post by David Wolf on this concept says gaslighting and this comes from a 1938 stage play called Gaslight, in which a husband attempts to drive his wife insane by giving the lights in their home, which are powered by gas, and then denies that the lights change when the wife asks him about it. Once an abusive partner has used gaslighting to break down the victim's ability to trust his or her own perceptions and beliefs, the victim is more likely to stay in that relationship because the victim no longer believes or trusts it's possible to survive without the abusive partner because they no longer trust their own truth. Systems of oppression and discrimination and privilege reinforce the same type of concept. The greatest weapon that is set in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. The problems of granting each person, especially those who are different, the right to name and define their own truth as solutions that begin on very personal levels. And when we learn how to practice entering another's truth and lived experience, we can begin to build the bridges that heal and restore. In our reading this morning, Parker Palmer talks about how in his courage and rule program retreats, they really are serious about the concepts of no fixing, no saving, no advising, no setting each other straight. He told us this morning it is impossible to exaggerate how demanding this is to most people. But he says it's important because the soul never wants to be witnessed to, attended to. It wants to be heard. It doesn't want to be shut down. It does not matter whether or not you hear my soul speak as much as it is important that we grant you the space to hear your own soul's speak. We start with granting each other the space to hear the soul's speak. And then the souls can speak to each other. 
Take not arms through this community to use a process called beginning anew. He writes, the beginning anew is to look deeply and honestly at ourselves, our past actions, our speech, our thoughts, and to create a fresh beginning within ourselves and relationships with others. We practice beginning anew to clear our mind and keep our practice fresh. When a difficulty arises in relationships with fellow practitioners and one of us feels resentment or hurt, we know it is time to begin anew. The beginning of the new process has four parts. The first is called flower water, a chance to share our appreciation for the other, an opportunity to shine light on the other's strengths and contributions. Flower water is followed by sharing regrets. We mentioned any unskillfulness in our action or speech or thoughts that we have not yet had an opportunity to apologize for. Then expressing hurt. We share how we felt hurt by an interaction with another due to his or her actions or speech. But no, the flower water comes first. Expressing our hurt is often performed one-on-one -on -one in relationship rather than in a group, although practitioners can ask for a third party, a third member of the group to be present for safety and respect. And then the process of beginning new ends with sharing a long-term difficulty and asking for support. At times, we each have difficulties and pain that arise from our past and service in the present. When we share an issue that we are dealing with, we can let the people around us understand us better and give them an opportunity to offer the support we need. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we practice circles of trust in the beginning of the new, not only across our culture, but in our home, with our family, with our friends, with our co-workers, with our church. Processes like circles of trust in the beginning of the new require us to hear and validate the <coughs> lived experience of the other. They build trust. They let people own, name, and tell their own story, and thus have their own truth. The first step of these processes is indeed storytelling. We tell our stories to one another, and we listen. So let us practice flower and beginning anew. If we can take up these spiritual practices for ourselves, we will begin to scare away to healthier relationships with each other and with those